This month we're looking at a short series entitled The Greatest Gift. All year we've been talking about walking worthy of our calling and how we should do that in so many different ways, but this month because of the holiday season and the attention that people uh, put upon the, the gift of Christ this time of year, uh, we're using that story, The Greatest Gift, to learn some other lessons. Uh, our plan is to talk about a gift worth giving, a gift worth waiting for, a gift worth receiving, and a gift worth understanding. So we're on number two, and today uh, a gift worth waiting for is what we're talking about. Let's look at the story about the greatest gift and then draw from that some thoughts about waiting for things. I'm going to read uh, parts of two accounts of Jesus' birth. And if you had to guess, you'd probably say, well, that's two of the Gospels. But no, one account is by Luke. The other account's by the Apostle Paul. Luke chapter 2, which I want to go over it, although Larry just read it, want us to see what's in there. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So Luke wanted to make sure we get this timing right. He gets this nailed down for us. He gets the history right so that people today, 2,000 years later, can look at secular history and figure out when all this happened. These are matters of history. Uh, So Luke goes on and says everyone went to their own town to register. And so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end, that's the way Luke tells this little story. Now, Galatians chapter 4, which I put in your handout, verse 4 and 5, Paul tells it this way. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Paul goes into the importance of the birth, the the reason for the birth, the fact that we could be adopted as sons, but what he stresses is that it happened in the fullness of time. Now we'll come back to that in just a moment, but let's spend a little time thinking about time first. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, To everything there is a season. Time to every purpose under heaven. If you want to turn over to Ecclesiastes 3, you can see the list. I'll read through it quickly. Paul says there's a time for everything. Time to be born and a time to die. We know that, don't we? He's talking about life. Everybody's born, everybody dies. Time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, time to heal. Time to tear down, time to build. Time to weep and a time to laugh. 
Time to mourn, time to dance. Time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. Time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent. Time to speak. Time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What Solomon's saying there is there's a time for everything, and by implication, God knows every season in our life. It's good to know that. He knows about the fun times and the not-so-fun times. There's some fun in that list, and there's some things that aren't fun. He's saying that everything in life, from being born to dying, everything's appropriate in its time. There's times for these things, and they happen, and God knows every season, every second, every detail, every moment. God's aware of that. Verse 11 goes on and says that God has set eternity in our hearts. Now, there's, there's a difference here. First eight verses, he talks about all the things in life. From being born to dying, all the things that happen in a, in a normal life, in everyone's life, basically. But then in verse 11, he comes back and he says, but in addition to that, this is something we need to know. God has set eternity in our hearts. Now, what's in our hearts just from verses 1 through 8? From just living, our hearts are filled with learning, the things we learn. They're filled with our memories. They're filled with our experiences. Some people in here have hearts much, much fuller of life experiences and memories and happenings than some other ones. You folks with gray hair have more in your heart than these youngsters down here. Because they're things of life. They're things that build up in the heart. But Solomon reminds us that in addition to all those things that are going in there, from the smallest to the biggest, in 70, 80 years is what the Bible says we get. We have a number in here that are blessed to have more than that. But in that range somewhere, we fill our hearts with all of that. But Solomon says, then also... God puts in the big picture. Now you can focus on the date of your birth and uh, the, your anniversaries and your birthdays and this time to laugh and this time to mourn and deaths of friends and all the things that happen in life. But he said there's a big picture in there that he has set in our hearts, the eternal plan. Something about eternity is in our hearts. The big picture. He knows every little season in our life. But he's put eternity in there too. Now let's think about what that means. Uh, Mary and Joseph and Caesar Augustus and Quirinius and the innkeeper. Everybody else in this story. Were going about their business. They were going about their seasons in life. 
They were just doing what they were supposed to do at that time in their life. They'd all been born. They'd all had some experiences. Now Mary was having a pregnancy. Joseph was dealing with that. Quirinius was governor for the first time. Caesar Augustus wanted a, a census. All of them were just doing their things completely unaware of each other. Caesar Augustus didn't care a bit that this was inconvenient for Mary and Joseph. It wasn't, wasn't bothering him a bit. It was just a piece of the puzzle all going on all at one time, completely unaware of each other. But Galatians 4 says, Now, at the fullness of time, a baby is going to be born. That's, that's God speaking from eternity picture. Now's the fullness of time. Now when this is going to happen. Let me, let me try to illustrate this in a real simple earthly way. What we're doing right now has been being prepared for two or three or four days. I knew what I was going to preach about a week ago. And so for a week I've been preparing, I've been studying, I've been working on what I was going to say and all that. Uh, about three days ago or so, a number of you men got notes in the mail that here's the part you're going to play in Sunday morning's worship time. You're going to wait at the table, you're going to say a prayer, you're going to do this or that. And those men began preparing for what they were to do. The one to pray thought about his prayer. And Tyler did an excellent job of focusing on what I wanted him to focus on. And all the men prepared in their places, and about, oh, 47 minutes ago or so, uh, Raymond or Al or whoever did it back there looked at their watch and said, Men, it's time. And out they came. About 45 minutes ago, the song leader looked at his watch and nodded to the sound booth, and we began to sing. It was time for that to happen. In this story, God looked at his eternal watch and said, now is the time, the fullness of time. And he hadn't been working on it for three days or a week. He had been preparing since before time. But that's what this story is about. In the fullness of time, God said, now, God will become human. It's time for that. It's time for the Creator to become like one of His creatures. They've got to understand him at that level. That's what Solomon's trying to tell us. He made us for eternal purposes. He put eternity in our heart. All men think of that. All men recognize that. Many suppress it. Many deny it. Many fight against it. But everybody knows there's a God. There's an an eternal part to them. And my my point about this is you can go through life and do all the things that Solomon talks about. You can plant and harvest. You can cry and laugh. 
You can mourn and dance. You can tear and you can mend. And you can add it all up and it's been a good life. You can do all that and say, this has been a good life. But unless you recognize that eternal part, unless you figure that out, you'll never really be fulfilled. I've done funerals where I helped bury somebody that I didn't know. The widow had some connection to Northside or my family or something, and the the widow would call and ask if I'd do a funeral, and I'd say yes, and, and I'd go talk to the family. And the family would describe the man's life. They'd tell me he did this. He was born on this day. He died on this day. He planted these things. He harvested these things. These were his hobbies. He cried about this. He, he laughed about this. And when they were all would be all done, I'd say, that oh, sounds like a good life. Sounds like a good man. Sounds like he had a really good time here for 70 or 80 years. But how about the rest of his life? What preparations did he make for the eternity of his life? In a case like that, the funeral is different. It's different. We can memorialize. We can tribute. We can talk about what a good man he was. We can read good letters from his children. We can do all sorts of things. But there will be missing any sense of celebration. That's what Solomon says. He says all these things are part of life. And we can go through them well, we can go through them poorly. But God's also put eternity in our heart. God's put it in there so we know it, so we understand the big picture. And the lesson we're looking at today is the fact that God knows this big picture. And in his sovereign timing, with Mary and all the others, he said, this is the fullness of time. This is when it will happen. Now, let's get back to Mary. Do you realize that from Mary's perspective, this was very bad timing? This was about as, it couldn't have been much worse. God said it was the fullness of time, but Mary said, at first point, her marriage was not completed. Now, she understood because the angel had explained it and all of that. But still, I don't think she could help but think, how many explanations am I going to have to make about this? How many looks am I going to have to suffer? How many snickers behind my back? Maybe they're going to abuse my boy because of this. She and Joseph weren't married under the rules of those days. Second, she wasn't at home. She was going to give birth in occupied territory. She was going to be where the Romans were, soldiers were all over the place. It wasn't home. 
Third, that census, that crazy census that Caesar came up with, had disrupted everything she had planned. I mean, she had plans back in Nazareth. She had family and friends there. She probably had the nursery ready. Everything was going along this nine-month plan that she had, and then, bang, here comes the census. Fourth, they were all alone, she and Joseph. All alone in a strange town with strange people, away from mom, away from her sisters if she had some, away from her support system, whoever that was, especially for her first child. She didn't have any of that. All alone with Joseph. Fifth, to say the least, the housing was inadequate. How many inns did they check before they found one that said, well, okay, go out back with the animals. You can sleep out there. Now, it was probably nicer than we like to imagine it. Probably more of a dry cave that they could seek shelter in. But still, it wasn't what they wanted. Let me ask you a question. How do you mothers feel right now? How do you mothers feel after this list? She wasn't even married completely yet according to law and custom. She wasn't home. Census had disrupted everything she had planned. They were all alone, just she and Joseph, in this strange place. And they were out in this inadequate manger kind of place with animals all around. Do you mothers feel a little bit for Mary? You remember how your first child was and how all that went? My guess is if we could go back and ask Mary about this, about this time, and say, boy, Mary, isn't it great that God picked this time for you to give birth? Doesn't it, this just feels like the fullness of time, doesn't it, Mary? Mary would have probably said, no, I don't think so. I don't think this is a good time for this at all. In fact, she might have been questioning God. Why is this happening? Why are all these things coming together so that I'm going to have my first child, your son, in this situation? She didn't understand the fullness of time. Let's look at another perspective. Looking at prophecy, this was a good timing. If you read the Old Testament, it is full of prophecies about the Messiah coming in a big picture kind of way. And it also gets down to a whole lot of little details. We can find a whole lot longer list if we really worked on it, if it was a major point. But this is just a quick short list. The Old Testament said the Messiah was going to come from the nation of Israel. He's going to come from the tribe of Judah. going to come from the house of David. Going to be born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, a little nothing town, visited by wise men. That's pretty some unusual prophecies for hundreds of years away. And now all this is coming together. You see why Paul called it the fullness of time. It's all coming together. We have a pregnant virgin with the right ancestry. She's been impregnated for nine months. And she's been ordered by one of the Caesars of Rome 
to go to the hometown of Joseph, which is a city of David, the city of David. And way off in the east, miles and miles and miles away, there's a star that is starting to move toward that little nothing of a town. I figure all of that just happened. Just coincidental. It just came together, didn't it? I mean, all these things that are rare in themselves, just coincidence? No, they're all coming together now. Because God, before history, said, now is going to be the fullness of time. Speaking of history, let's look at history. Looking at history, the perspective is, it's really good timing. In fact, it's amazingly good timing. He called it the fullness of time. He looked at his watch and he said, now it's time. He had been preparing for centuries. Not for a week, for centuries. And we don't have to look all the way back. Let's just look at a couple of centuries right around the time. First, let me tell you something was going on. The Jews had been dispersed. 63 years ago, 63 B.C., the Romans were messing around in this area, and the Jews revolted. And the Russians, or the Romans, started to rule. I have no idea where that came from. Larry, let's edit that out of the tape. Okay. The Romans started to rule, and people began to leave the traditional Jewish territory. They spread all over the Mediterranean basin. For 63 years they've been doing that. There were Jews in towns where there never used to be any Jews. Okay. 63 years this had been going on. Now, what's that got to do with the fullness of time? Well, a little over 30 years from now, from the birthday, a little over 30 years after that, Paul and others were going to start to travel. And when they went into towns, almost every town they went into, there was going to be a Jewish synagogue. There was going to be a place where they could start. People that understood the Old Testament, and they could start telling them about the coming of the Messiah, and they knew who the Messiah was. They'd have a place to start evangelizing. That little piece of history was coming to fruition. Secondly, there was a very favorable legal environment. Rome conquered lots of areas. Right now they were in a time of peace, but for years under Julius Caesar, they'd been conquering area after area and country after country. And all of them were different. And the Romans tried to be pretty tolerant with them religiously. They didn't want to upset things too much. But they did have one pretty overwhelming rule that you had to admit that Caesar was God. Well, if you read history, strangely enough, right about this time, just a little bit before, I guess it was just lucky, the Romans made an exception for Jews. 
they took the position that Jews didn't have to swear allegiance to Caesar. And for about 70 years from the birth of Jesus, the Romans really never recognized the difference between Judaism and Christianity. It was all kind of mixed up together, and they thought it was just a sect of the Jews, so they let them go on, and they didn't press this legal point of the thing about Caesar. That gave us, we as Christ followers, it gave us time to get the seed planted and growing without that legal restriction. After they figured it out and had enough of it, they destroyed Jerusalem and started persecutions. But things were already planted and happening by then. Third thing, there was a very favorable political situation in the area at this time. Julius Caesar was the most famous Caesar, and he was the warlord, if you will. They fought more wars and expanded more and conquered countries and had civil unrest everywhere under his reign. But Augustus Caesar, after Julius was assassinated, Augustus Caesar took power about 25 years before Jesus, and he brought a time of peace. There was a peace for almost 200 years. Now, what difference does that make? Why does that little bit of history matter? Well, instead of battling all the time, instead of spending the whole budget on wars and soldiers and all that, they began to build things. And one of the main things they began to build was roads. They built roads all over the Roman Empire. And travel before this time had been a very, very dangerous thing. The Romans built safe roads and they put soldiers on them to patrol them. First highway patrol. And they kept them safe so that people could go places. Well, who needed to go places? Christians had to go places. After they were run out of Jerusalem, they had to go all over the world doing exactly what Jesus told them. He said, as you go, he spread the word. The roads were ready somehow when they were ready to go. Fourth, there was a very favorable culture, especially in the area of language. Now, this is a mind-blowing thought, but this day when God said, now is the fullness of time, That day was really the first time in history since the Tower of Babel when everybody understood a common language. Everybody in the world around there where we were going to operate spoke Koine Greek, common Greek. Alexander the Great had gone through all these places, and everybody understood Greek. Now, there were other languages. People still kept their common customs and all that, but they understood and read and wrote Greek. So Paul and Peter and John and all these people could write an epistle in Greek, and it could go anywhere. People could understand it. The words that Jesus spoke were recorded so that everybody could understand it. Still today we understand it. Fifth, there was a very favorable philosophical environment. Aristotle, you may remember him, was a Greek philosopher, and he had lots of buddies. And you have to study that in college some, but 
Basically, what the Greek philosophers did was ask a bunch of questions. They didn't have many answers. They just asked all these questions and made people think about all these questions. And anybody that was a little uh, into philosophy and wondering about life and all that looked at all their questions. Well, Christianity came along and started giving answers. One scholar said the Greek philosophers were like plowing fields, but they didn't sow seeds in them. Christianity came into those cultivated, fertile, plowed fields and sowed the seed of truth. The world was ready to learn some truth. Okay? Now, all of this, look at that list again. All of this, the dispersion of the Jews. The legal environment, the political environment, the culture, the language, the philosophy, all of that, once again, coincidence? Just happened? Accident? Don't think so. God knows about every detail of your life. Everything is appropriate in its time, and we have eternity in our hearts. That's what this one little story of Jesus tells us. Suppose we could interview Mary not once, but twice. Once in Bethlehem. This is a good time for this, Mary. (laughs) No. Couldn't be any worse. Absolutely horrible. Interview her later. A few years. Talk to her in heaven. Yeah, I see now what was going on. I see now. I didn't see from my daily perspective. I didn't see from the earthly things in my heart. But from the big picture, that was just right. How about you? Any times like that? Remember any times in life when you said, God, what are you doing? Why is this happening now? This is not right. It's not good. Now you know. There's a thing about the fullness of time. I hope today's look at God's sovereign timing has been helpful, a gift worth waiting for. There's things in life worth waiting for. Next week, we're going to talk about a gift worth receiving. Now, let me close by asking you a couple of questions and proposing one thing. Can you remember feeling like Mary? Anybody in here remember feeling like Mary? This isn't the right time. We do not need this mess right now. I'm guessing everybody in here has had a time like that or two. Ever feel like Mary and Martha? There's another one. Remember Mary and Martha? What did they say to the Lord of the universe? You came too late. You messed up. You came too late. If you would have been here when I called you, Lazarus would still be alive. But you messed up. He's always on time. He is always on time. Because he understands the fullness of time. He understands the big picture, that eternity that he put in our heart.
I'm going to guess one thing. Uh, in a crowd this big, I can be pretty sure I'm going to guess right. I'm going to guess right that for somebody in this crowd, for something in your life, today is the fullness of time. Today's the fullness of time for something. I don't know what it is, and I don't know who it is. But in this many people, there's got to be actually quite a few more than one things. I don't know what it is, but you do. When I said that, when I said this is the fullness of time for somebody, for something in your life, you took a jab. You said, ooh, how do you know that? I know that because of the way God works. The way life is. All of these things in Ecclesiastes verses 1 through 8, and then the eternity thing too, it all comes together. There's something that somebody's been putting off. The eternity in your heart told you so. See, people that push that aside and don't recognize God and just work on those few eight verses about the things of this life, they may not feel that. They may cover up their conscience where it never bothers them. But you guys that come here every week, you know enough about the eternity in your heart that it tells you those things. It says you've been putting this off. And I don't know what it is. It may be personal, something you've got to change in your life. It may be family, something you've got to change in your family. Maybe between you and God. Because you know that relationship's not right. I'm telling you to think of it this way. Listen to God say, don't put it off any longer. Today, now, is the fullness of time. You need to do what you know you need to do. We hope you come to the front. Let's stand and sing.